Jnana-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-kaya-sala-k
of course, I'll explain what all those things mean in terms of what in terms of Nama Bas, but it's a very, very nice um, example. And the same example is, of course, given, I think, by Haridas Thakur as well in the I can't exactly remember where, but there's this whole discussion about the glories of the holy name and Haridas Thakur uh, gives the same example. And um, uh, um, the, this example for me is very kind of personally, personally important because when I joined Audaria many years ago and uh, it was really tough for me in the beginning, I struggled a lot, but I, I didn't, I never wanted to like, I guess, bother Guru Maharaj with my, you know, tweak outs and stuff. And I would just kind of push forward without saying anything. And then, but then finally at one point within maybe the first four months or five months or something, I came to a point where I just, I couldn't deal with my, my mind anymore. And so then I like timidly went up to his room. He actually in this room where I'm right now, he was sitting on the couch right there. And I came up and I was like, you know, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm melting, you know, I'm melting down here. And, and I like, you know, poured out like, oh, it's so hard and this and that and all these problems in my mind and you know, whatever, whatever, you know, the tweak out was, I can't even remember what the details were. And then he said something like, well, you have to remember that the, the sun actually is never covered. There's only the clouds, they, they cover your consciousness, but the actual sun is never covered. And it was like this extremely simple thing that he said to me but it, it was one of those things i guess it's those things when the the chaitya guru or the kind of like the internal manifestation of the guru like speaks to you through your guru and it's like it can be the simplest thing and it just completely like clears everything out and that was my experience he said those very simple things just about how you know you might be under the clouds but the sun is never obstructed by anything it's it's like completely in your mind and it i remember the rest of the day i was just like on a cloud instead of under the cloud right cloud nine and uh it was a very profound experience for me because it was this really um, strong quick uh, actual realization of how whatever happens in my mind it doesn't change the absolute truth in any way or or the fact that the absolute truth is constantly shining on us uh, whether we act badly or not it's just that we cover ourselves with this like ball of cloud and we want to be inside of that cloud and that mist and that that really is the only problem because because like when the mind starts tweaking out, sometimes you start thinking like, oh, maybe this is not true, you know, like that, that's like the idea that there is no sun actually, you know, there's only darkness and we're stuck in darkness. And then, and then the mind goes and goes and goes like that. And probably I was going through something like that because his very simple thing of like the sun never going out was like, oh, right, that's the actual, the sambanda, the how, what the relationship of different things are to each other. Like it's in my head, it's, it's not in the, in the environment. And so Bhaktivinoda, he specifically says that he compares ignorance. He says there's two things that, uh, that um, block us from chanting the pure name, and, and it's ignorance and anarthas. And so he compares ignorance to mist and anarthas to clouds. And he doesn't make this connection, but I'm assuming what he's saying there also is that that 
when mist condenses, it turns into clouds, right? So when the ignorance gets condensed, it becomes, it basically turns into anarthas in our hearts. And um, then Bhaktivinod, um, I forgot to say one thing about this whole cloud thing. I'm just going to say one more thing. And that is that if you haven't been to Audaria, we're like on this hilltop, right? And if you want to get out of Audaria, you have to drive down these like uh, kind of like country roads down to the valley. It's called the Anderson Valley. And so bigger highway was well, not in a highway. But it's called a highway. This one road, if you want to get out of Anderson Valley and Philo, it's all the way at the bottom in, in the Anderson Valley. But when the mist and the fog comes in the night, it always like gets stuck in the valley and we're like above it. And like, so every time I used to deliver milk to the Iskon temple in Silicon Valley. So every Sunday I would drive down, it was amazing. Like every morning, it was the perfect, the perfect like cloudless sunny morning here. And then I would start descending down to the valley <laughs> of material existence. And you know, the first the mist would come and then this thick clouds. And when I was down in the valley, it was like completely overcast. And I don't know, it was always like a beautiful thing to come down and see you, you'd be above the clouds. And so that's the best, I guess, I can do at this point to like imagining some very indirect way of what it's like to be above your material conditioning is that you just, I had the same feeling every time I would drive down, I was like, yes, like I'm, I'm not, you know, <laughs> conditioned by these clouds or whatever. I can't quite catch what I'm trying to say here, but maybe you can get the mental image of like driving down these beautiful hills and you can see this fog and this, these clouds underneath and you kind of, you know that you're above that or whatever. Um, so anyway, back to this idea that ignorance is mist and anarthas are clouds. Then Haridas starts explaining how um, he starts breaking down these two different categories. Like first he takes ignorance breaks it into three, uh, three categories, and then he looks at Anarthas and breaks that into three categories. And that's interesting that he breaks them into three categories because um, uh, Shamananda was talking about Anarthas in his first class, was it a couple days ago? And like the way Shamananda explained it, that's I think the more traditional way of breaking it down is actually four different categories of anarthas. But anyway, we'll, we'll go with uh, Bhaktivinoda on, on this one, the way he explains it here. So anyway, let's see what, how, what he says. So the three types of ignorance are ignorance concerning the holy name of the nature of the holy name, and then ignorance uh, concerning the position of Krishna and his personality and his position in the bigger scheme of things. And then the last type of ignorance is the ignorance concerning the spirit soul or the atman who we are so that's ignorance and then three types of types of anarthas are thirst for material objects which is oh i forget the sanskrit something trishna maybe shamananda can pitch in weakness of heart which is hridaya durbalia something like that and then offense aparat so three types of anarthas thirst for material objects weakness of heart and offense. And so then first 
Haridas starts explaining like, okay, so we have ignorance, we have anartas, what are we gonna do with that? We, of course, as devotees, we wanna chant Surhanam, like that's the whole goal of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, actually. You can just insta instill, I mean, what's the word? Distill the whole, whole tradition, whole culture, whole philosophy to that one thing. We want to chant Surhanam. That is the core, the sum total of, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, because everything comes from the name, right? So then like, okay, first, our first obstacle is ignorance. So what do we do with that? And really it's, it seems so simple. Simple. It's just, we need Sambandagyan. We have to, first of all, understand what's what. And we, I think we, yeah, we talked about this in the first class. The first chapter is all about getting the, your bearings kind of in the, in the metaphysical structure or orientation of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. But very important points made by Haridas. He says that that you have to know, first of all, Krishna is God. He's completely independent, all these things. We are infinite, small spiritual beings who have, we're like uh, completely connected to God in a way that we could never be separate from him. But yet we have our own personality in relation to him, in, the, in relation to Swarup Shakti. And how, you know, the matter is non-conscious, and but it's a manifestation of Krishna's Shakti at the same time. So basically, it's like the three uh, main topics of the Vedas or the scriptures is the Brahman or Bhagavan, Jiva and Maya. And so we have to know all that. But then Haridas makes a very important point. That's not enough in itself. Like it has to be realized knowledge if you really want to get beyond your ignorance. I mean, it's an obvious point, but easy to forget that like just knowing theoretically that Krishna is God, if that doesn't translate into this deep, sincere, honest, like spontaneous faith, you're actually not and pick something in the world that seems like a nice thing and see, and it seems like you have faith in that thing when you say, yes, I believe that Krishna is God. But the thing is, there's kind of two levels of, of being a devotee. One level is that it is a form of upadi, basically, which means like a designation, material designation. So you can be, I mean, we are, that's what we are because we're mostly Kanishta Adhikaris. So we are devotees a lot of times on that level that for us, it's a designation in the world. I like devotees and that's good. You have to start from there, but it's also important to understand that that's, there's two levels to being a devotee or more than there's actually three because there's Kanishta Madhyam and but anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that we identify as the packaging of a devotee in this world. And so it's still like, in a way, world-centric. It's like, as a person in this world, I want to be a devotee. And that's a great start. But if you really have that spontaneous Brajapakti in your heart, that's neuropathy. That's, that's completely beyond thinking that you are a devotee in this world you actually think you're this like worm in stool <laughs> instead um which i guess that's you could say that that kind of humility is another sign or another indication of the fact that you have no upadis because you don't even think that you're devoted or worm worm you know the most disgusting lowest thing you can Anyway, I just wanted to make that point that um, if it's not realized knowledge, 
our understanding of what a devotee is, is always tied to this world. And it's on some level, it's tied to this world. And it's on some level tied to our material psychology and, and psychophysical uh, experience. Um, and specifically, Harry says that you will stay on the Nambas, Namabhas stage. You can't go beyond it without having the realized Sambhanagyan. Um, but then he makes sure that he emphasizes the fact that even Namabhas is extremely auspicious in itself because it is, if it's done right, I'll go, I'll show you a chart of how this Namabhas breaks down. But when it's the right kind of Namabhas that's based on faith in Krishna, um, it is the actual light of the Shudhanam, but it's a diffused form of that Shudhanam, the light of the Shudhanam. So that's why the, why we might be chanting, but you once and you'll be liberated, you know, and everything will go away. Uh, all inauspicious things will go away and we're chanting. We're like, yeah, not exactly happening here. But the thing is, um, it's the level of the diffusion or the level of the thickness of the clouds that is the defining factor of how much taste you're getting. But so then to, to showcase how Namubas is extremely auspicious, even actually when it's totally offensive, like even the Namabas that the Mayavadis chant uh, is extremely auspicious on a certain level. Um, and it really is like the chief pious activity if you look at it from that angle. Like Shubha Karma, we talked about that. If you were listening in on my Jayavadharma talks, there was that one class about different types of karma. And so Shubha Karma is like this most auspicious type of activity. And so Haridas makes the point that, that Nama Bhas is the best form of Shubha Karma. And that might be a little, uh, I mean, uh, strange might sound sound a little strange because it sounds like bhakti is a karmic activity but that's not what he's mean he's talking about the the effects of namabhas is the best kind of karma or you get the best kind of result from it. so then haridas goes on to list all these uh, amazing effects of of namabhas and uh, just imagine yourself, okay, like watching TV or something. It's, you know, the commercial channel where they only show TV commercials. And so then this thing comes on, you don't know what it is. It says, hurry Nam, you know, and then it starts, you know, how the, the voice comes and they start listing all these amazing benefits of their product. So, okay, hurry Nam, all sinful effects are destroyed. The lowest can be delivered, you know, all diseases can be destroyed. Evil influences of ghosts, demons, spirits, and unfavorable planets are nullified. Even jivas in hell can achieve liberation by chanting. And the effects of namabhas are more powerful than the effects from reading the Vedas or visiting the holy places. It's the best kind of activity. And in Kali Yuga, you can even go to Vaikuntha, or let's say, you know, in the TV commercial, you can go to heaven. Uh, by chanting, uh, you know, Namabas. And then you're watching that commercial, you're like, okay, well, and now you're kind of like biting your nails, like, what's the price going to be? It's going to be expensive if it has those kind of benefits. And then, it, you know, the price comes on the screen and says, the only thing you need is to have some faith in this thing. 
So that's like bad capitalism. If you think about it, you give out something that's just amazing on all these different levels for basically just whoever thinks that it might work. Actually, in fact, it works even if you don't think that it works. And so it's bad capitalism, but that's the whole thing of uh, Krishna. The nature of Krishna is that he's, he's just pure mercy. And so that this is the form of his mercy is that if you just take his name in whatever way you take it, there's going to be some benefit from it for sure. And the more purely you take it, the more incredible the, the benefit is. But anybody who chants, even accidentally, is going to have some kind of benefit. So, you know, that would be, yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, and now I'm going to show you guys the, the Shudhanam chart that I put together, which basically shows Oh, there's chat something. Asat Krishna, that's right. That's the taste for or like desire for material things. Thanks, Shamananda. Okay, so then. Huh, that's weird. I, I'm trying to share a screen, but it's giving me this. Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay, here we go. Okay, so the reason I wanted to, do you guys see it okay? Krishna Kumari, thumbs up if you can see it. Okay, great. So the reason I wanted to clarify this is because um, there's a lot of confusion about Nama Bas and Nama Aparad, like what is the difference? And so Basically, the, I think the clearest way to think about it overall is that the Shudhanam and there's Namabas, and that's it. And within Namabas, there's Namabas. But basically, Namabas is any form of Shudhanam that is covered by some kind of material uh, conditioning. And then when it gets to the lowest, like the mo biggest possible uh, conditioning, then it becomes Namaparad. So that's one way of looking at it. But so then let's look at this. So within Nama Bas, there's basically, you could say, three main categories of different types of Nama Bas. And so the incidental Nama Bas is like, uh, this is mentioned in the Bhagavatam, uh, of like people chanting without meaning to be devotees or without meaning to worship. It's just completely incidental. And like, I'm just quickly going to go through these different examples. So the unintentional type of chanting is you say, like, for example, there's that famous example of Ajamil. You know, he meant to call out to his son, whose name was Narayan. And because of that, the really, uh, because of that, he was saved from going to hell because the name is inherently powerful because Krishna and his name are one. So that's unintentional. You, you're not at all intending to show respect to God or anything like that. The parihasa, parihasa type of uh, namabas is you joke. You, you make a joke like Gurmach. My Gurmach always gives the example of making... Um, well, it's not, not exactly making fun. But anyway, you make some kind of joke that has the Hare Krishnas in it or something like, or you just, there's some name of God or like... Prabhupada used to tell those Gopal jokes. So the main character's name is Gopal. So that would be like joking mood. 
And then stobha is derision. So uh, that could be like you make fun of the devotees when you see them on. Like I always remember, I was already a devotee at that point, but I was kind of, um, I couldn't surrender. I was kind of like a French devotee. And so we went on tour to Europe. And I mean, a punk tour is like about as tamasic as you can get. I mean, and so it was a very tamasic environment. But so then we were in Prague and then all of a sudden in the middle of the square, this huge devotee party comes through chanting Harinam. And I was like, oh, my heart just like, like burst. But I was with all these like atheist punks with the crew that I was with. And one of them started like, like jumping around and clapping her hands and just laughing at the devotees. She didn't know I was a devotee. And, and that, I was like, oh, wow, like she actually, <laughs> I was like angry about it at the same time. And then, but I was also thinking like, good, you know, she, she did, did actually get some Sukriti from, from de deriding the devotees. And then the last example of this incidental type of Namabas is disrespect or Hela. And so you can see, if you look at the, the gradation, it goes from more pure type of incidental Namabas to less pure. Because unintentional, there's no bad intention, but and it ends up in like disrespect. So somebody can say, God, I hate you, Hare Krishna, or I hate you, devotee, or whatever, I hate you, Krishna worshipers, or something. That is actually a form of Namabas. And then this is, then we move on to the Pratibhimba and Shradhanamabhas. Um, this is where it gets a little tricky. So uh, Bhaktivinod says that there's two types of intentional Namabhas. And those two types are Pratibhimba Namabhas and Chaya Namabhas. And I'll explain to you a little later why I put the Chaya Namabhas in these parentheses. But so that's the first kind of breakdown. So pratibimba means a reflection and chaya means like a dim, just like diffused light, but it's the direct light. Reflection is reflecting out of some other object. And so I was thinking of a, of a good... Uh, I like these similes and metaphors. So the, here's what I was thinking about. Like, so, okay, so there's some dude in Finland, for example. You know, in Finland, they're so crazy that they actually go swim in the ice, uh, in the, in, you know, in the hole in the ice. So you're there and you, there's that hole in the ice and you see the reflection of the sun on the, uh, on the surface of the water in the hole. And you mistake that for the, for the actual sun and you wanna, you know, approach it or whatever and you dive in the hole. And then you end up being stuck under the eyes. And so, so you can see how like trying to go towards the, the sun, the warmth of the sun, but when it's the reflection is actually you go in the opposite direction and you end up in this ice cold water under the eyes. And so um, this is how basically Bhaktivinoda Thakur without mentioning holes in the eyes um, talks about Pratibhimba Namabhas that it's basically the Mayavadi tendency or the, the tendency to, to impersonalize God, but trying to reach that state of impersonal Brahman by chanting is like diving in the hole in the ice in search of sun, the sun, because you think you're going after it, but you're actually going the very opposite direction. And that's the reason why Bhaktivinoda uses some very heavy language about Mayavad in, in Harinam Chintamani, because he's basically trying to 
uh, caution to bodies that be very careful because it looks like the real thing. It's a reflection of the actual thing, but it's gonna get you in the opposite direction. And Shraddhanamabhas or the Chayanamabhas means that you believe in Krishna and, and you chant, but you still have the mist and the clouds. So you have still have ignorance in your heart and you still have anarthas in your heart, but at least you believe in the concept of Krishna you know, as it is, as he is described in the scripture. So that's Shradhanamabhas. And that Bhaktivinoda make, makes the point is the only real type of Namabhas that actually leads to, to Prem Bhakti. You can chant Pratibhimba till your face goes blue, but you will not ever achieve Krishna Nam, I mean Shudhanam or Krishna Prem through Pratibhimba Namabhas. Whereas through Shradhanamabhas, you will actually eventually um, reach that point. So, and if anybody wants to uh, get this chart, just send me an email or, you know, send a message on Messenger or something, I'll send it to you. Okay, moving on. Mm. And there's a very nice quote, right? It's just a direct quote from the Harinam Chintamani. It says, Though the person at Namabas stage does not know the full glory of the holy name, realization will come for the very nature of the name is that it gives realization of itself. And that, of course, what that means is that the only way to clear these clouds and mist is by chanting, you know, like continuous chanting, basically. And that it's another reason why this metaphor of the sun is so fitting because the, the sun is the very thing that burns away the clouds and the mist in nature or in the case of, of Nambhas and Shudhanam. Oh, look at that. Marangapal is on, on the line. I'll absolutely send it to Marangapal. Thank you. He just sent me a message saying that send me the chart, please. <laughs> that was nice. Um, so to, uh, to just kind of summarize the whole thing, um, Bhaktivinoda says, it's really as simple as avoiding Mayavadis and, and their company at any cost and, and serving real devotees who chant Sudhana. And that, that will in itself purify you from, from uh, all the anarthas and the uh, misconceptions. And uh, so then the next, that's basically it for the Namabas uh, Nama uh, chapter. And the next chapter is chapter four, which is the first offense. And uh, I have another chart for the 10 offenses, but uh, let's see how many we can come up with just from, from memory. Who's gonna, who's gonna start? You can write it in the chat or just uh, speak up if you want. I will, in the meantime, look for the chart. Who knows the first, first aparad, nama aparad? Sadhu Ninda. There you go. Very good. And then, actually, I think that's a good start. We'll just show the things. It's going to take too long. <laughs> but uh, 10 points to Shamananda. Here we have it. 10 offenses to the holy name. So. I'll just read these through just to, you know, get uh, memorize them and, and think about this. So one blasphemy, blasphemy or criticism of Vaishnavas, 
Two, considering that other living entities such as the Devatas are independent of Krishna. Three, disrespecting the Guru. Four, disrespecting scriptural authority or the Vedas. Five, interpreting the meaning of the name and thinking that the glories of the name are imaginary. Six, committing sinful activity on the strength of the holy name. Seven, giving the holy name to the unfaithful who are not ready to accept it. Eight, comparing the holy name to karma or material, material pious activity. Nine, inattention while chanting the holy name. Uh, that one, to me personally, is by far the most uh, relevant at this point. And remaining without attachment to the holy name, even though one knows the greatness of the name due to attachment to the material identity of me and mine. Well, actually, nine and ten are competing in my mind over the most profound one, but both of them are pretty, pretty important. So uh, the chap chapter four is all about uh, sadhu ninda or disrespecting the sadhus. And Haridas starts this uh, chapter by uh, just describing the qualities of, of a sadhu that I mentioned in Srimad Bhagavatam. And I don't know, I very much just like reciting these different qualities and like thinking about like what kind of a person is somebody who has all these qualities. So let me just read some of these out and you can think about what kind of a person it would be who would have all these qualities. So a real sadhu is merciful, tolerant, equal-minded, truthful, pure, engaged in helping all humanity, intelligent, it has intelligence that's free from lust, it, he's sense-controlled, devoid of the concept of ownership, mild, clean, regulated in all habits, peaceful, disinterested in material affairs, patient, steady, surrendered exclusively to Krishna, not negligent of his duties, very grave, not wanting honor, respecting other living entities, skillful, without the cheating propensity or hypocrisy, knowledgeable of the scriptures. So, I mean, Sadhu is like an ubermensch. If you know the Nietzsche, terms by Nietzsche, it's like this uber person, really. That's, I guess, is a Sadhu. But right after that, Haridas is very uh, quick to point out that there's two types of characteristics of the sadhu. There's the principal and the, the secondary or the marginal. And really the only principal characteristic of a sadhu is exclusive devotion to Krishna. And all the other ones either follow or if they are not immediately there, it shouldn't matter almost. Like really that, that is the point that there's a cause and effect. And only one of these qualities is the cause and the others are effects of that exclusive devotion. Um, and also Haridas makes the point, and it, it's fitting that it comes from the mouth of Haridas who was uh, born outside of the Varnashram system. He says that the Varnashram, uh, different uh, um, positions or statuses in the Varnashram system, they have nothing to do with who can be a devotee. And uh, it's the only uh, qualification is the depth of faith in Harinam and the depth of faith in Krishna. And so at this point, of course, there's that famous verse, Apichet Suduracharo from the Bhagavad Gita, that basically saying that even if a person has very bad qualities, if he's or she is uh, exclusively devoted to me, then he's 
uh, or she is to be considered the best of, of the sadhus. And this, you know, you do have to admit, I, I will admit openly, oops, I'm just, hold on, still sharing. Okay, sorry. So, I mean, I will openly admit that this can be hard to accept. Um, there have been some devotees in the international um, Gaudiya circles who have done a lot of amazing service, but the, and they have been direct disciples of Prabhupada and they've done absolutely horrendous things at the same time from the materialistic point of view, or from the material point of view. And so basically what the Gita verse is saying is even they should be considered sadhus. And I think that's as far as I want to take it here because it's a very controversial thing and um, can evoke a lot of feelings, especially from those who have been abused by people like the devotees like this. But just to think about the implications of, of what a heavy statement this actually is about the purity of, of, of uh, Krishna and, and the holy name. But of course, then Haridas does quickly make the point that um, if somebody is completely pure, then they can't have actual sin or actual bad qualities in their heart because the name completely pure, purifies everything. But at the same time, even if you have like, well, anyway, I'm kind of jumping ahead here. I'm getting too excited about this idea. Um, so let's see, where am I? So yeah, he, so he makes the point that that some traces, if you there, there, there's a time when some of the traces of those sinful activities or like bad traces of bad qualities are still lingering in your chitta, in your uh, awareness or your psychophysical, um, what would you call it, psychophysical uh, package. Uh, but it, it's just a matter of time that they're going to be cleared away. Um, and that's really uh, like materialistic, materialistically minded people can often, not everybody, of course, but they can easily like, I've, and I've seen this. Um, and actually, I was like this myself before I became a devotee. There's this like desire to find fault in devotees because they seem like they're so holy, you know, and they, you know who they, who they think they are like they're better. so then I, I how like there's this like intense scrutiny scrutiny to try to find fault in people who are dedicated to a spiritual path by the materialistic mind, materialistically minded people and so that's what uh, Haridas points out too that that when they when the materialists see a trace of sin or bad behavior in a in an otherwise saintly person they hyper focus on that and start criticizing that the sadhu and that's that's a form of sadhu ninda for sure um and even as us as devotees because we are you know mixed devotees at the stage we're at we actually have to guard ourselves from that tendency because obviously we have materialistic tendencies and this is a 
I would say probably a pretty big materialistic tendency is to find fault, especially in the people who are more pure, I think. So, and that's due the, to the envy in the heart. The more envious we are, the more we want to find fault in the people who are above us, right? Because envy wants to pull everybody else below us, below ourselves. So it's very good to be aware of this part, this aspect of sadhu ninda or disrespect in the sadhus in our own hearts. And yeah, uh, here's another nice quote directly, direct quote. The person who humbly takes shelter of Krishna, humbly sings Krishna's name and thinks himself to be the lowest rascal is the real sadhu. Knowing himself to be lower than a blade of grass, considering himself like a tree of tolerance, not expecting honor for himself and giving honor to all other living entities, he chants the name and attains attraction for Krishna. So again, it's the, the humility that really shelters us from sadhu ninda and, and this not thinking too much of ourselves, which is pretty much impossible for anybody who's materially conditioned really, because the nature of material condition conditioning is that we think that we're the center of everything. So if you think, have that like faulty abhiman or this sense of being the, the uh, controller. And so because you, th you think that you're in charge and that you are the center of everything that goes around you, you're just acting out of this certain paradigm, which we can't see ourselves that is completely faulty because we're covered by ignorance. Anyway, moving forward, uh, Haridas uh, says there's four types of sad, sadhu ninda. And one of them comes from caste or like a like social standing, really. Like, so if, if a sadhu is, you know, from a humble family or something, then you, you hold it against them. The second one is previous sins or faults committed in this life. So if you had a very sinful past, then people hold you, hold it against you based on that. And this is kind of part of what's somewhat happening in the devotee scene. Like some devotees did bad things 40 years ago and many people still very much um, hold it against them, other devotees. Then there's the unpremeditated act of sin. You do something that you didn't intend to, but it's sinful nonetheless. That's the third type of uh, so you get criticized for doing an unintentional act of sin. Or then when some of these slight traces of the previous sinful habits are still in your chitta or in your kind of like uh, personality, you get criticized for that. And personally, I have to say that is something that I fall prey to sometimes. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I, in all honesty, that is one of the hardest things for me uh, in this avoiding Sadhu Ninda. Um, so then the question comes like, how does this Sadhu Ninda develop? And Harda is very clear that it, it uh, develops from association with, uh, asat, with Asat Sangha, which means like non-devotee association. And this is another hard topic. I mean, I could probably uh, talk a whole full, like full hour about this, about what a difficult topic this is in the world that we live in right now, because it's not very difficult for me to be honest with you, because I'm mostly just in Audari and I don't see anybody else than my wife and, and Gromart, my Gromart, but, but generally 
like so there's there, there's so many uh injunctions in the Gaudiya scriptures about avoiding non-devoted association and it starts very quickly to secular normal people it starts especially when there's no like um like society is not what's the the right word stratified in a way that it was in the you know in the Varnashram system where there's a like kind of like a box for every type of person in a way like right now the idea is that everybody is equal really like everybody has the equal inalienable rights and you know there's a lot and I'm not at all saying that that's a bad thing sure I mean there's a lot of good to the modern system but the problem comes when there's this hard really hardcore uh foundational idea that everybody is equal on every level almost or that we should at least act like everybody's equal on every level this idea of avoiding non-devotee association starts looking like are you guys some like um uh amish or something like you're just these like uh, luddites who want to like get stuck in some past and and try to recreate some time in history that's long gone what's wrong with you guys but i think really at least for me the the way to really make sense of this in terms of my own conditioning as a 21st century human being in the west is that you approach it from the yoga philosophy side not it's like societal like society should be you know broken down in these and these parts and you know you're sudra so why don't you go and clean the toilets or whatever it is Instead, you approach it from the yoga philosophy side, like just uh, observe your own mind and be extremely aware of what different things, how they affect your mind. Um, I don't remember if I'm repeating myself, but for me, it's always really interesting to spend a long time in Audaria, completely isolated, pretty much. And then I have to go to my mother-in-law's somewhat uh, quite a bit because she's getting older and she needs help and stuff so i go to the bay area which is like you know that's the silicon valley it's it's like the <laughs> the heart of of the secular world in some ways the tech world you know the liberal ideas the the whole package is there but not only that but just like people are they live like normal lives we do not live normal lives and so it's really kind of like this litmus test for me to see so clearly what it does to my psyche. And I, a lot of times it's not good. <laughs> it's not good at all. And so this is really the, the angle to come, come at it. It's like, okay, so like, why do you have to avoid devotee association? Well, a non-devotee association just try to see how it affects your thinking and whether it starts making you think less and less about Krishna or not when you associate more with uh, non-devotees. And of course, the thing is, there's plenty of people who are really good-hearted people, but they're not like devotees, you know, like they don't, they're not, don't have the card. But that's, I think, a different thing. If you have very kind of like religious or spiritual people who are not envious and not proud i really can't see what in my opinion at least i should ask my guru Maharaj, and i will actually after this talk but there doesn't seem to be any reason to avoid that kind of association in fact it's good to relate with people like that so really it comes down to just observe how how different 
circumstances and different association affects your mind. And since it's really easy for me to see how much it affects things when I'm completely isolated from people and then I go out, uh, it's every time I go back to the Bay Area, I'm just blown away by how um, extremely impressionable the chitta is. Like we just, we sit everything, we just, we take it in. And it, everything, every single thing we see or experience actually affects the sum total of our consciousness and the quality of our consciousness. And a nice, like a real, uh, you could say almost scientific proof of that in some ways is hypnosis. Because if, if somebody gets hypnotized really deeply, the hypnotizer can pull out almost any memory from that person which means that it is stored somewhere, even in terms of like the material idea of storing memories in the brain. What to speak of the way the yoga philosophy sees storing these impressions or you, uh, what did you win your second birthday, at your second birthday party? Like this happened to my dad. And, and they will, you remember, although of course, like consciously have absolutely no idea what it is. So every kind of impression, be it mental or like um, sensory, you will actually remember it on some level. And so this, I think, is why, in a nutshell, why it's absolutely crucial to avoid um, association in a way, like if you want to make steady progress. Of course, we can't always do it and we shouldn't become like, paranoid or what's the word like neurotic about it either like okay we just have to accept it that things are going to affect us in a certain way we might have to chance chance some extra rounds sometimes to scrub the scrub the mind but um it's i guess what i also want to say is it's not this like 10 commandments kind of rule like if you do this you go to hell you know if you associate with non-devotees you're going to go to hell for sure it's more like you are free to do whatever you want, but here's what we know from experience. If you want to progress in your chanting and, and progressively purify your mind, certain things like association is extremely critical to how fast you purify yourself. And so you can't, one, I'm gonna say one more thing, then I'm gonna move forward. But one thing is that you can't uh, superficially cut off your association. If you're attached to certain people who are not, don't happen to be devotees, you can't artificially you know, cut it off and just like act like you don't care or whatever. It has to be kind of organic and progressive and, and kind of reasonable, I would say. And if you don't want to cut off that association, then you certainly shouldn't because these things, I, I strongly believe that these things should not be forced internally or externally. So, yeah, but let me just quickly say, Bhaktivinoda um, Thakur uh, breaks down a non-devoted association to association with inappropriate association with the opposite sex or, you know, in the, worldly, I mean, the secular sense association with whoever you're attracted to, it has to be 
somewhat curbed so that your desires don't get the best of you and then associate associating with those devoid of faith which uh bhaktivinoda breaks into mayavadis pretenders and atheists <laughs> um, yeah i think i'm kind of running out of time here but um just quickly uh bhaktivinoda also mentions that it's important to learn to um differentiate between the different levels of devotees namely because then it's less there's less chance that you will commit sadhu ninda or disrespecting a sadhu because you know who is where and then you behave towards them accordingly in the bhagavatam there's this uh, important verse about describing how a madhya madhikari uh gives mercy to the to the innocent and uh, makes friendship with the people who are on the same level spiritually as him or her and then avoids the envious and gives respect and and service to the ones who are above him and um so in that way Bhaktivinoda really emphasizes it's it's extremely important for us to become try to reach that madhya madhikari stage because then we can discriminate properly and that will uh, kind of block us from doing this sadhuninda, committing this offense of disrespecting the spiritual people. And also he makes the point, which this was actually came as a bit of a surprise to me, but Bhaktivinoda says that at the stage of Madhyam Adhikar, you start chanting the Shudhanam, the pure name. And that's another reason why you really want to try to strive towards the Madhyam Adhikari stage uh, progressively. Uh, so then he wraps up this uh, chapter, which is also going to wrap up this talk by saying that the remedy, so throughout these 10 offenses, in the end, Haridas Thakur always says what the remedy for this offense is, because after all, it is like a manual for chanting, so it has to have procedures how to counteract bad things. So. Uh, Haridas says that the remedy for disrespecting a sadhu is that you you fall at their feet, you know, either physically or you know um, allegorically, and you pray for forgiveness and you, you like sincerely ask for forgiveness. And because Vaishnavas are uh, very uh, generous by nature and very humble, they will they will certainly excuse your offense, whatever it might have been. So I'm going to stop there and. Uh, ask if you guys have any questions or comments. Hi, Krishna. Haribo. I just wanted to say thank you for the wonderful class. There's so many great things in here. And just mm -hmm. some of the things that I really got, it's so much about faith or depth of faith. Um, the continuous chanting um, that even in the the Chaya Namabas that you know believe in Krishna, but we still have some ignorance and anartas that are still there, but that we can achieve Sudanam, you know, we, we don't have to have full knowledge, but we have to keep working at that process. Um, right. And you know, I was thinking about um, association. And so I'd be really curious to hear what um, your Guru Maharaj has to say about that, because when I think about, you know, if your goal is um, 
kind of the realization and, and manifestation of our um, internal identity. And that's the real goal that we have, that we should be really surrounding ourselves with people that have the same, or devotees that have the same goals and limiting as much of that association. And I don't know if that's right or not, but that's um, that's what I would wanna know as well, because it seems like such a focused goal and um, is it a different, you know, different place uh, yeah. to think about association. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I really appreciate it that you take notes. That uh, That's very nice. <laughs> I, <yeah. laughs> um, um, I would say, I, I'll ask him after this class, but I, I've heard him answer this question about non-devotee association many times. And he's very generous in his preaching. And he basically what he says is, you know, don't become, um, what's that word, neurotic, like don't become like weird about it, but that, that he says that it doesn't mean that you associate with somebody if you're in the same space with them or whatever, like basically he uh, says that association means that you share your heart and you open yourself up to being influenced by another person. Mm -hmm. And so that's on the low level. I think that's probably what he would say. Um, and then on the higher level, that's a good question. I mean, I have heard him say, I think I will double check with him, but I've heard him say that um, it depends on how clear you are on your own uh, attraction in terms of your staibhav. And so I, it probably follows kind of naturally, like the more attracted you actually get to that goal, the more you just want to hang out with the people who are like, oh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And so that's probably, maybe it's like a dynamic thing like that, but I'll, I'll ask him, I'll, I'll let you know next, actually next week, I'm not giving a class because But I'll give another class. So I'll, I'll ask him and uh, I'll be sure to let you know. Excellent you. question, though, or both questions. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd like a chart too, please. Oh, absolutely. Questions. Yes. I'll, I think we're friends on Facebook now, so I will send it through Messenger. Great. Anything else? Haribo. Haribo. Just a small comment that the, the list of uh, an artist that I was reading was, was also from Bakhtabinov Thakur, but from Bajan Rahasya. Yeah, sorry, I should have made that clear. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting that he didn't use that same list. I think they're, they're written pretty close to each other. I mean, Harinam uh, Chintamani was written 1900. I think Bajan Rahasya was pretty much right after that or something like that. But it's interesting that he used a little different uh, list there. But thank you for the comment. And uh, I guess if there's nothing else, let's just wrap it up. And like I said, next time it's gonna be on the 22nd, I think. So hope to see you then. And uh, let's chant Hare Krishna. Go to Fremanand, Haribo.